Let's open our Bibles to the book of Joshua. We're studying through Joshua. We're uh, in the middle of chapter 13. Starting an interesting section of the book where Joshua begins to divide the land among the tribes. We left off in chapter 13, verse 7. We're going to study the rest of the chapter and the first five verses of chapter 14. I'm going to read portions of that to you. We're going to skip a long section in the middle of chapter 13, which is filled with uh, unpronounceable names. Uh, and, and it's not nothing important happens there. It's just not, you know, uh, I, I just, I can't do it. If your name was in there, I'd do it. I was somewhere the other day. It was so funny. And uh, I, I it's no big deal, but I had to be introduced. And so the guy was really, really concerned about pronouncing my name correctly. And so he said, how do you, you know, how do you say your last name? I said, it's really simple. It's Pensiero. I said, just let's do it phonetically. And I had him write it down phonetically, Pensiero and stuff. And then he got up and introduced me as Gene Pensnario or something. It was, it was really... <laughs> You know, I keep telling people, I, and th then there's somebody else, they said, well, how do you pronounce I said, just call me Gene. Uh, and, and so, oh, I know, it was, I was talking to a, a, a tech on the phone the other day, and they said, you know, well, Mr., and I said, just call me Gene. They go, okay, Mr. Gene. And uh, I don't know, it's crazy stuff. So, with that in mind, that's our text. The topic, the two and a half tribes who misspoke by demanding land east of the Jordan River receive their inheritance the title of our message, The Tribe Has Misspoken. It was the best of the three bad titles. So anyway. Verse 7. Now therefore divide this land as an inheritance to the nine tribes and half the tribe of Manasseh. With the other half tribe, the Reubenites and the Gadites received their inheritance, which Moses had given them beyond the Jordan eastward, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had given them. From Aror, which is on the bank of the river Arnon, and the town that is in the midst of the ravine, and all the plain of the Mediba as far as Debon, all the cities of Sihon, king of the Amorites, who reigned in Heshbon, as far as the border of the children of Ammon, Gilead and the border of the Jeshurites and the Machathites, all Mount Hermon, and all Bashan as far as Salca, all the kingdom of Og in Bashan, who reigned in Ashtaroth and Edri, who remained of the remnant of the giants. For Moses had defeated and cast out these. Nevertheless, the children of Israel did not drive out the Jeshurites or the Machathites, but the Jeshurites and the Machathites dwell among the Israelites until this day. Only to the tribe of Levi he had given no inheritance. The sacrifices of the Lord God of Israel made by fire are their inheritance, as he said to them. Now please skip down to verse 32. These are the areas which Moses had distributed as an inheritance in the plains of Moab on the other side of the Jordan by Jericho eastward. But to the tribe of Levi, Moses had given no inheritance. The Lord God of Israel was their inheritance as he had said to them. Chapter 14. These are the areas which the children of Israel inherited in the land of Canaan, which Eleazar the priest... Joshua the son of Nun and the heads of the fathers of the tribes of the children of Israel distributed as an inheritance to them. Their inheritance was by lot as the Lord had commanded by the hand of Moses for the nine tribes and the half tribe. For Moses had given the inheritance of the two tribes and the half tribe on the other side of the Jordan 
But to the Levites he had given no inheritance among them. For the children of Joseph were two tribes, Manasseh and Ephraim, and they gave no part to the Levites in the land except cities to dwell in with their common lands for their livestock and their property. As the Lord had commanded Moses, so the children of Israel did, and they divided the land. Let's pray. Lord, as always, we have a wonderful sense of anticipation that though this ancient text uh, is written about land boundaries and inheritances that in one sense have nothing to do with us, it has everything to do with us. It's really all about us as we see the spiritual implications, Lord, of your dealings with your Old Testament people, Israel. Shower your love upon us, Lord, as we've gathered here in this place. Give us wisdom and insight and understanding. And I pray that when we leave here, Lord, our lives would be uh, focused and in order with your plan for them, that we would be trusting you, Lord, for our lot in life. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. You'll never guess how they legally resolve some elections that end in a tie. The 2006 Democratic primary race in Alaska's House District 37 between incumbent Representative Carl Moses and challenger Bryce Edgman ended in a tie. By law, the election was settled by a coin toss. In the Bible, they didn't flip coins, but they did cast lots. The practice of casting lots is mentioned 70 times in the Old Testament and seven more times in the New Testament. In spite of the many references, nothing is known about the actual lots themselves. They could have been sticks of various lengths. They could have been flat stones like coins or some kind of dice. It may seem unspiritual to make major decisions by casting lots, but the Old Testament saints believed what we read in Proverbs 16.33, the lot is cast, but every decision is from the Lord. In other words, the Lord superintends the lot and reveals His will through that practice. Now, we're going to become very familiar with the casting of lots in the next several chapters of the book of Joshua. Lots are repeatedly cast to determine the division of the promised land to each of the tribes. Not all the tribes, however, participated in the casting of lots. Here in the last part of chapter 13 and in the opening of chapter 14, we encounter three and one-half tribes who do not participate. Two and a half tribes asked for the land on the borders of the promised land and were granted it by Moses prior to any casting of lots. The tribe of the Levites were told from the beginning that they would not receive any permanent inheritance in the land, and so they never expected to have lots cast for them. There are, of course, lessons to be learned from these tribes. I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, look beyond the land to your lot. And number two, look beyond the lot to your Lord. First of all, let's take a look at the two and a half tribes. Look beyond the land to your lot. An Israelite had no doubts about how the promised land was going to be divided. Way before they ever arrived, you read in Numbers chapter 26, and this is verses 52 through 56, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, to these the land shall be divided as an inheritance. The land shall be divided by lot. They shall inherit according to the names of the tribes of their fathers, according to the lot 
Their inheritance shall be divided between the larger and the smaller. And so way back in the book of Numbers, way before they got into the promised land, the Lord said, this is what we're going to do. We're going to cast lots, and however the lot falls, that is my decision for how we're going to divide up the land by tribes. It was thus appalling, to say the least, for the two and a half tribes to ask for land on the east side of the Jordan. It showed an indifference or even a total disregard for God's word. God said, we're going to divide the land by lots. And these guys stepped up and said, we want this land. We don't want to wait for our lot. We need to remain in awe of the word of God in its simplicity. Mark Twain was asked one time about the Word of God and the parts that can't be understood, and he said something to the effect of, it's not the parts that I can't understand that bother me, it's the parts that I can. And the idea is that there's a lot that we understand about God through His Word. There are a lot of decisions that have been resolved for us, and we need to remain in awe of the Word of God and remaining in the will of God. It's becoming too common for Christians to grow indifferent to the Word or to disregard it. Actually, it happens in every generation that there's an attack on the authority of the Word of God, on the inspiration of the Word of God. People want to get away from it and bring in other uh, you know, wisdom from other writings or other sources or other experiences. Uh, and, and it's always dangerous, it's always hazardous to your spiritual health to do that. And so these tribes, they knew God's plan, and they decided for themselves that they were going to ask. Now, you can give them a, a little bit of leeway. You shouldn't, but maybe you can give them a little bit of leeway for at least asking. Moses rebuked them. We've looked at this a little bit before in our studies in Joshua. Moses rebuked them. He couldn't believe what he was hearing. Moses was a, a real giant spiritually. I mean, right? I mean, he's one of the big guns. Uh, I mean, here's a guy that met with God face to face, who came down from a mountain with his face glowing like, you know, one of those glow-in-the-dark figures or something, you know? I mean, he was a powerful guy. He spoke, you know, he raised his staff over waters. They parted. He hit you know, rocks with his staff and, and water started pouring out. It was fantastic. If you went to Mo I'd like to believe that if I asked Moses something and he not only said no but rebuked me, that it would be kind of a wake-up call. Hey, I'm not really on, on the same page as we like to say today. But instead, the two and a half tribes persisted in their demand and Moses caved and granted their request. Apparently, they understood the softer side of Moses. And, uh, you know, sometimes these guys that are so, you know, oh, I don't want to talk to that, they, they really are teddy bears when you get to know them, you know. And so, you know, he, he, he put out his rebuke, and they said, okay, well, we still want that land. He says, all right, here's what we're going to do. Uh, and he granted their request, provided that they promised when the time came to send all their fighting men over the Jordan into the promised land to help the remaining tribes conquer it. By the way, just as an aside, just because you persist and God relents doesn't mean it's his will. Just because he doesn't kill you, you know, <laughs> I mean, you know, you ask for something and God says no, and then you keep asking, asking, asking. He says, all right, if you want it that bad, go ahead, but it's going to turn out badly. It doesn't mean that you're in the will of God. 
Uh, and so they made this deal. Now, at the beginning of the conquest, Joshua reminded them of that promise. They dutifully sent a substantial army, but not all of the fighting men. They were, uh, they, in fact, they left most of them behind to guard their families and their properties. Now the time had come to divide the land by lot. We are reminded that these guys, the Reubenites, the Gadites, and half the tribe of Manasseh, already had received their portion. No lots would be cast for them. They refused to wait for the Lord to decide their land by the casting of lots. The question is, why? Well, there's a clue in Numbers chapter 32. I want to read these verses to you. They're verses 1, 2, and 5. Now the children of Reuben and the children of Gad had a very great multitude of livestock. And when they saw that the land of Jazer and the land of Gilead was good, a region as a place for livestock, the children of Gad and the children of Reuben came and spoke to Moses, to Eleazar the priest, and to the leaders of the congregation, saying, Therefore they said, If we have found favor in your sight, let this land be given to your servants as a possession. Do not take us over the Jordan. The key phrase there seems to be, they saw. They looked and they liked what they saw. It comes down to this. They trusted their sight rather than walking by faith in the Lord. Instead of waiting for their lot to be decided by God, they took matters into their own hands. And, and that's, that's got to be the bottom line. God said, I'm going to divide the land by lot. Whatever I give you, is what I've determined for you and is obviously what's best for you because I'm God and you're not. And these guys come along and they say, well, that may be true, but we just want to hang out here. We want this land right here. We don't know about what God has for us and we don't really want to find out. And so it's a very serious uh, error on their part. That kind of looking and seeing has created a lot of trouble in the Bible. In the Garden of Eden, God asked Adam and Eve to not eat the fruit of a certain tree. We're told that Eve looked at the tree and when she, quote, saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and she ate, Genesis 3, 6. A little bit later on in the book of Genesis, on the plains of Jordan, when their flocks and herds had grown too large to be supported by the land, Abraham told his nephew Lot to choose the land he wanted. Lot, I quote, lifted his eyes and saw that all the plain of Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord. And so Lot chose the better land from that point of view. It's interesting that the writer throws in that it was like the garden of the Lord because Lot essentially did the same thing that Eve did. He looked at something and he determined for himself, by himself, without seeking the Lord, hey, this is where I want to go. Eve looked and saw, and along with her equally hungry hubby, plunged God's creation into sin. Lot looked and saw and began moving towards a life of increasing carnality that ultimately found him living in the midst of the wicked cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. It's so bad for Lot that the first time you ever read through the Bible, you're not even convinced he's a believer or a Christian until you get to the New Testament. And the Apostle Peter mentions that he is that righteous man, Lot. And you think, time out. How is it that Lot was a righteous man? He was a carnal believer. He looked, 
decided on his own this is what he wanted and moved in the direction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And each time you see Lot after that, he's a little bit closer to that city until he's stuck in it. And then when he's in there, he's so immersed in it that when the angels come to rescue him from Sodom and Gomorrah, he doesn't even want to go at first. It's an amazing thing, really. Now, I would put the two and a half tribes in that same category. They knew God wanted to give them their land by lot. Instead, they insisted on getting their land by look. Things deteriorated rather, uh, rather rapidly for those two and a half tribes. Because they were cut off from the central place of worship established in the promised land, they set up their own altar on their side of the Jordan River. We'll see later in the book that it nearly resulted in a civil war between them and the tribes living in Canaan. In their later history, because they were on the east side of the river, they would be the first to be overrun, conquered, and enslaved by Israel's enemies because uh, they were cut off from help from their brethren and they were easy prey. They were so concerned about making for themselves a good life that they were willing to abandon God's will for their inheritance. One author went so far as to say that they cared more about their livestock than they did about their children. And that's a very harsh statement, but I, I thought about it for a while, and essentially it's true. Because here's, here's what we're saying. God says to them, I, I have something for you. It's an inheritance in the land that will pass from you to your family forever. The land is mine, God says. I'm giving it to you, and it will remain in your family name. And just the, you know, though it was a physical inheritance, uh, the Jews understood that there was a spiritual component to it. And just like we understand that whatever God gives us is the best to show His glory and for our good, that we should wait and receive that. And if it's the best for us and we're going to pass it down to our children, then it's the best for our children as well. These guys, they came along and they said, hey, we've got a lot of herds. We have a lot of livestock. This is fantastic land. We just want to hang out here and our children will prosper in that way. We don't know what God has for them spiritually, but we do know what they can have physically or materially. We can really grow here. I mean, we can establish ranches and farms, and, and I mean, it'll just be fantastic for our children. And they, in a sense, gave up their children's spiritual inheritance for a physical inheritance. Uh, and, and, and so in that sense, I agree. They did care, in one sense, more about livestock than about their children in a spiritual dimension. They should have looked beyond the land to the Lord and waited for Him to give them their lot in life. Now, in the New Testament, we no longer make spiritual decisions by casting lots or flipping coins. I had to tell our leadership we're not going to flip coins anymore. I'm just kidding. Uh, we are to pray to wait on the Lord and to read His Word. We're to employ sanctified common sense along with a sense of the Lord's leading by the indwelling Holy Spirit. As a result, we don't often think of being given by God our lot in life. In fact, we often use that phrase in a negative connotation. If something overwhelming hits someone, we say in an almost fatalistic way, well, it was his lot in life to suffer. As if you, you pulled the short lot and, and you know, you, it was the wrong decision. When in fact, God gives us 
a lot in life. I'd rather think along with the Apostle Paul that, and I quote, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Good works summarizes the activities of our lives as we dedicate them to following and serving the Lord. God has, in a sense, foreordained good works for us to discover. They are our lot in life to discover as we walk with Him. And so we're to just simply each day live the Christian life. Spend time with the Lord. Spend time in His Word. Spend time in prayer. Share our faith with others. Serve others. Go to church. Whatever all of that means. And as we do that, God leads us and He guides us and directs us, and we discover our lot in life. We discover people that we're to minister to, jobs that we should have, schools that we should attend, the people that we're supposed to marry, all of those kinds of things. Along the way, we sometimes get distracted by the land. I've known too many young people who go away and they fall in love with somebody before they find out if that person is a Christian. And then once they're in love and the date is set, then they sit down and you say, well, tell me about your faith in Jesus Christ. Who? Jesus who? Judas Priest? No, Jesus Christ. Oh, well, yeah, I'm not really a Christian. What are you doing with this person? We're in love. And, 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 and it's, it, they're looking at the land. This is the land I want. I want this person. That's my land. I know God, I don't know that God has some land for me. I don't know that he has something better for me. I'm going to settle here on the border of God's will for this person that I'm in love with. And it's not just relationships, it's jobs, it's everything. We just, you know, oftentimes become borderline because we're not really following the Lord. The two and a half tribes got their eyes too much on the land and off of the Lord. One poet once said, only one life soon will be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. That's a good kind of a solid uh, motto for our life. You want to be able to say with certainty, this is my lot in life. It was given to me by the Lord. It was discovered through prayer and reading the Bible and by submitting to the leading of the Holy Spirit. Good works, fruitful works have resulted from me accepting my lot in life. I look forward to the reward seat of Jesus where I will hear from the lips of the Lord, well done, my good and faithful servant. There was one other tribe that did not receive a lot in the land, but it was for a very different reason. And that's our second point. Look beyond the lot to your Lord. Let's read verses 14 and 33 again in chapter 13 and then the end of verse 4 in chapter 14. So follow along. 13:14 says only to the tribe of Levi he had given no inheritance the sacrifices of the Lord God of Israel made by fire are their inheritance as he said to them then down in verse 33 but to the tribe of Levi Moses had given no inheritance the Lord God of Israel was their inheritance as he had said to them and then the last part of verse 4 in chapter 14 and they gave no part to the Levites in the land except cities to dwell in with their common lands for their livestock and their property a little bit of background. After the Israelites left Egypt and crossed the Red Sea, God called Moses up to Mount Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments and the pattern of the tabernacle that he was to build where the Israelites would worship him as God. While Moses was away for an extended period of time, 
the people down below asked Aaron to make them a god. He made them an idol, fashioning for them the golden calf, and they began to worship it. Coming down from the mountain, Moses said to them, Whoever is on the Lord's side, come to me. The tribe of Levi gathered to Moses. They strapped on swords, and they killed 3,000 of their brethren that day in their zeal for the Lord and His holiness. As a result of their taking sides with the Lord, the tribe of Levi was selected by him to take care of, quote, the service of the work of the tabernacle. That Hebrew word translated service, by the way, means warfare. Their service in the tabernacle was a figure of spiritual warfare. It was kind of a bridge uh, to their history, really. When the Israelites in later generations would think of their service, the service of the Levites, they would remember the incident in the wilderness where these were the ones who were willing to go to war for the Lord on the Lord's side and face down their own brothers if necessary for the purity and the holiness of God. And it would remind people that spiritual work is always spiritual warfare. There, there's nothing that you'll do for the Lord that doesn't involve uh, warfare and demand courage as a Christian soldier. The Levites were constantly willing to risk their lives for God's service. For example, they carried the sanctified vessels of the tabernacle. If those were mishandled, God might kill you. There's a story later on during the time of David when David's all excited about bringing the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. And he decides that he should put it on a cart and wheel it along. And while it's being wheeled along, it uh, hits a bump in the road and it starts to get a little bit unsteady and Uzzah or Uzzah reaches out his hand to steady it and God killed him right there because he was the wrong person to touch the Ark of the Covenant. And, and so it was, a, it was a pretty serious thing to be a Levite. Hey, these curtains, do they get folded left or right? These poles, which direction do they go? I mean, it's very serious. You could be killed. Levites served as the honor guard, gatekeepers, and musicians of the tabernacle. They also assisted the priests in preparing the offerings and in other aspects of the tabernacle's functioning. In contrast to the other tribes, Levites had no inherited lot in the promised land of Israel. Forty-two cities scattered throughout the inheritance of the other tribes were set aside as cities for them to live in. In those cities, the Levites served as spiritual teachers and leaders to the people of Israel. Those cities also served as shelters for anyone guilty of accidentally causing a person's death. They were cities of refuge that you could run to and be safe from the person they called the avenger of blood. Uh, you know, if you accidentally killed somebody, it's kind of like in, in Sicily. If you accidentally or on purpose uh, kill somebody, but in this case, if there was accidental manslaughter, you just ran to the closest city of refuge because as soon as the family found out, whoever was the guido in that family uh, would come and, and try and kill you. Uh, you know, and so this was a very important thing in their culture. Whereas the other tribes worked the land, the Levite was dependent on tithes and offerings and the food gifts of others. In exchange for a life of service, the Levite received God's ordained sustenance through the required tithing of the nation. So the Levite had to look beyond a lot in the land to the Lord. On the surface, you might feel a little sorry for them. 
uh, we, even in our culture, place a very heavy premium on the ownership of land. Uh, you know, from the youngest age, you know, you're telling your kids, you need to get saved, you need to be a Christian, and you need to buy a house. I mean, everybody, you know, you got to buy a house, you have to have land, you know, you're crazy if you don't. And, and I'm not even against that. I'm just saying that it, it's, it's ingrained in our culture. Now you, here's God saying, hey, I've got a great reward for you. You came and, and you served me and you're on my side and you killed your brethren. Here's your reward. You get no land. You just get me. And, and there's a tendency to think, that's lame. How about I get more land and you? Uh, you know, and, and so, th but we're missing the point. That's the idea. Because in fact, they receive the better portion. Because of the Lord's decree, the entire land was open to them. And as they traveled through it, they were being used by God to affect the lives of their more settled brothers and sisters. As we'll see, some of the tribes don't like the land that God gives them. Uh, uh, reminiscent of the times in our life when we don't really appreciate the Lord's will. They complain and they, they want somebody else's land and those kinds of things. The Levite was free from that. He could say, hey, this whole land, I, I can go pretty much wherever I want in it and pursue my spiritual activities. I'm not confined to one location. And in one sense, that's a real blessing. We're to be like the Levites in that and in other respects. We can look beyond the land, beyond this world to eternity. Our contact with the world can be as light as possible. We can be unencumbered. No matter how much we own or don't own, we can be unencumbered so that we can be available to minister to others. Wherever we find ourselves, we are a source of spiritual counsel and encouragement to others, both believers and non-believers. Most of you, in fact, probably all of you who are Christians have had the occasion where at work or somewhere else outside of a churchy kind of a setting, somebody you, don't, uh, you know or even somebody you don't know starts talking to you about very serious spiritual issues in their life, their marriage, their family, uh, what in the world is going on kind of a thing. In that moment, you're like a Levite to them. You're, you're you know, in that area where, uh, you know, you can minister God's counsel and wisdom to them. Oftentimes, you're a refuge to them in their stress and in their trouble. You offer to them the spiritual protection of the love and the forgiveness of God. It's not that they have to flee literally to a city. It's not as though Armona is positioned as, you know, a city of refuge, you know, between Hanford and Lemoore. What's that guy doing? He's running to Armona so he doesn't get killed. But they, you find that they come to you, and in that moment, you are a, you know, a city, really, of refuge to them. Can I be forgiven? Look at what I've done. How could, how, could I, how could I have done this, and can I be forgiven? What is my eternal destiny? And so it's really a beautiful thing in that respect. The Apostle Paul warned of becoming rich, and losing perspective. First Timothy chapter 6, he says, Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God. Since that was a command that Paul gave to Timothy, then I'm going to heed that right now and I'll say, Hey, you guys, don't be haughty and use your riches for the Lord. And you think, Okay, well, that's great because I'm not rich. 
And for the most part, we're not, unless you start comparing us to other people in other places in the world. But that's another subject. But the idea here that I get out of this this morning is it's easy to become haughty if you have possessions or wealth. The natural human tendency is to think that if you're successful, it's because God is blessing your natural abilities or your personal holiness or your personal righteousness. It's, you know, notwithstanding that some of the most ungodly people in the world are the most successful people, we still tend to think that, hey, I'm doing okay. I, you know, I'm, I'm pretty successful, so I must be okay. Uh, and we get haughty. We, we, we get proud, and we don't share our wealth. We don't see ourselves ministering to others. Paul says, let them do good, that they may be rich in good works. You want to be rich? Be rich in good works ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. In other words, Paul says, you know, if you happen to be wealthy, have light contact with it, be like a Levite, minister, use it for God's glory because you're going to stand before the Lord one day and you want to stand on a solid foundation of good works, not on materialism because all of that's going to burn up and, and be gone and only what's done for Christ will last. And so that's what we're working towards. And Paul's not talking to people who go into the ministry. We have a tendency to think that there are, you know, people who are normal people, who have real normal jobs in the world, and then there are people who are missionaries and ministers, and that these things only apply to them. These things apply to Christians, to believers in Jesus Christ. All of us, uh, the Bible says, are a kingdom of priests. We're all Levites in that sense. And so wherever you are, God has put you in that place. That's your lot in life. And you're to, uh, first of all, find that lot. Make sure that you're not looking at your own land, but at God's lot. And then within that lot, when you're starting to think, man, I don't know if I'm really that comfortable here. I don't know if I like my lot in life. Then the Lord says, hey, actually look beyond that to me. Because if I've chosen it for you, it is the best for you. It's not what you would have chosen for yourself. You think, well, Lord, yeah, that, I, I want to choose for myself. And God would say, hey, then you're a Reubenite. Then you're a Gadite. Then you're part of the half-tribe of Manasseh. And you need to trust me that it didn't go well for those guys. That for a while, they had tremendous luck at the local fairs with their sheep and goats because they had the best grazing land. I mean, they were like, you know, uh, they were on the top of their game. But ultimately, they lost all of it. They were taken away. They lost their children afterward. Uh, you know, you, you, trust me on this. You want my lot in life, even though it's maybe not what you would choose. And in it, learn to be a Levite in the sense that, Lord, what do you want me to do in this lot? Who do you want me to talk to? Who do you want me to minister to? How can I serve you? Sometimes I, I got into this a little bit first service, and, and nobody uh, uh, punched me afterwards, so I can say it again. But, uh, and I mean this sincerely. Uh, I joke around about the local cities and Hanford and how it's a small town. But I really love, I love living here. I mean, we've been here over 20 years now, and I love it. Uh, you know, I wouldn't want to go anyplace else, really. 
But I've noticed over the years in my own life and in the lives, especially of native Hanfordites, which I'll, I'll never, I didn't graduate from Hanford High, so I can never really be a native Hanfordite, right? I mean, I know that. So I'm always going to be a Southern California transplant, but that's all right. I, I feel the love. Um, there's a lot of people in this area and in small towns like this who, who have a mentality that I, I'm never going anywhere. This is my life and you can't blow me out of here, you know, with bombs and there's no way that I'm ever going to leave. I am settled here. And, and probably you are. Probably you are. Uh, but we need to be bigger than that. I mean, what does God want to do with your life? I'm not saying God wants to send you anywhere, but we should be at least open to anything God wants us to do. Otherwise, again, we fall into this category of people who are looking at the land and saying, hey, I'm never going over the grapevine. I've, I've looked at that from there. I get as far, I've been up to the Tohon Pass, and then I, I turn around, you know, at, and, at Gorman. I just gas and go uh, because I know what's going. There's evil. It's Sodom and Gomorrah down there, you know. And, and so, but, you know, that's the kind of thing. It's like, you know, the, the Levites, they, hey, we can go anywhere. We're not tied down here. Maybe we can go over here and see what the Lord has for us over here. And uh, so all of these kinds of uh, analogies and comparisons, they're designed by God to set us free, not to burden us, but to set us free, to give us a, a new perspective on serving Him. As I said, chances are you're not going anywhere, but at least we want to be open to the Lord. We don't want to fall into the trap of thinking that what we see is really what's best for us. God knows what's best for us, even if for a while it seems to be what's worst from a worldly point of view. Job had to declare that the Lord gives and the Lord takes. But he said, blessed be the name of the Lord. He's, he's God in uh, the times when he's blessing you, and he's God in the times when he's not. Let him choose your lot in life, and then look to him as your portion and your strength. Father, we thank you for these things. They're precious. We appreciate, Lord, that from a spiritual point of view, you trust us with precious gems and jewels. Uh, they're not on loan to us, Lord. They're given to us. And if we want to keep them, we can put them into our righteous garment and wear them, Lord, from now and through eternity. And, and this is a really good lesson today, Lord, from the point of view that we want to not look. We want to have your lot, and in it we want to live for the Lord. And so just bring that home to our hearts in a really powerful and precious way. Convince us, Lord, that you would only ultimately do what is good and right for us. And may we trust in that. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's stand together. The guys are up here to pray with you, which is their great joy. And so if you're here this morning and uh, you would desire prayer, uh, come forward and uh, wait upon the Lord with them. Um, God is so good to us. Uh, we've had a morning of, of just lifting up our hearts in praise to the Lord. Uh, we've studied God's Word. And hopefully we're encouraged to go out and to really conquer some land that the Lord has given us. Maybe our perspective is hopefully a little bit changed. Only in the sense that we know that God is for us. If, if you remember nothing else this morning, remember that God is for you. And if God is for you, then what? Who can be against you? 
nothing and no one, nowhere can be against you. May God bless you. Amen.